when I study the serial killers, how do you, how do you take these children like Wesley Allen Dodd or Mac Ray Edwards, uh, uh, James Duquette? How do you take children and kill them? Your victim is nothing more than an object. You don't see that person as a child. You don't see them as an adult. You don't even see them as a male or female in some ways. It's just an object. And I think we are officially recording now, so why don't we kick right in? I will do the intro, have a moment of silence here, then we'll kick in. Okay. <clears throat> hey, everyone. Welcome to Cold Red. I'm Jim Fitz Fitzgerald, James R. Fitzgerald, et cetera, et cetera. I'm here with Ray Carr, my co-host and colleague and good friend for many, many years in the FBI. And I'm I even let him still hang around with me, quite frankly. So it uh, it works out for uh, for him, especially. We have a special guest tonight, also a good friend of mine. I haven't known John quite as long. We can talk about how we first met and stuff. But this is Dr. John White. He is a psychologist. He is a professor at Stockton University and author of In Pursuit of a Serial Killer, The Archetype Case. And we will talk about that a little bit later. John White, welcome on board to Cold Red. Thank you, Jim and Ray. Nice to be welcome, here. Welcome, John. You, um, I think we both belong to that, is it a profiling listserv or something? And was it around 2010? You're, we both are looking at posts, and I realize you're in one part of South Jersey. I'm like 20 miles away. And hey, who are you? That's right. We uh, we got together over uh, online, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, we were on that academy group post. Academy group. That's right. Uh huh. And um, uh, we, like you said, we found out that we're about twenty miles away. I invited you up to Stockton, and you came in and and uh, got to know you and and uh, your lovely wife Nat. Now wife. And um, uh, the rest is history. I got, we, we started talking, we, we have a lot of things in common. Uh, you were a police officer for a while before you joined the FBI. I was a police officer uh, before I left academia and went to, um, well, I left police work and went to academia. And um, so we have a little bit in common. We were both... Um, of course, you were one of the instructors, I guess, um, in Roy Hazelwood's uh, class. Not a class. It was that uh, program that they had, Roy Hazelwood and some of the others. Yeah, we should explain to our listeners what the Academy Group was. And um, there was actually a show based on it called, I think, Millennium, Millennium. or Millennium. Millennium. And it was in the maybe the 80s or so, but um, it was a group of uh, former FBI profilers who worked at the FBI Academy, and they retired uh, in the late 80s when I was just starting, quite frankly, in the FBI, and they started their own company in Manassas, Virginia. And when I retired in 2007, uh, a bunch of guys who had trained me and some of the you know founding fathers, if you will, of profiling and sexual assault analysis, those type things, they uh, they were running this company. They recruited me, and I joined them in 2008. And yeah, we would train law enforcement officers. We would train corporate folks. We would train academics. And uh, Ray, you came to the office once or twice. You talked to uh, a few of the folks there when because you were a few years away from retiring, and you were considering joining us, right? I was. I was. And uh, just as I came out of the bureau and was looking to join, it kind of uh, people got a little bit older, and it kind of decimated and everybody kind of went their separate ways. Yeah, I went to some classes with uh, Roy Hayes that Hazelwood taught in the academy group. And um, uh, he invited me to uh, join. And so I did as a uh, consulting psychologist. And um, it was very interesting. I mean, we got a lot of different cases. Yeah, our clients were the corporate world and some law enforcement, and I, and I came on as a profiler and forensic linguist. So, um, yeah, we could maybe bring on some of those folks, but uh, 
Uh, Roy Hazelwood, of course, is, again, the father of uh, sexual assault uh, typologies, rapist typologies, and father sounds bad, like he was doing these things. But I mean, the research and the writing on it, and uh, and he really, he literally wrote the book uh, that is still used today in some of those uh, in some of those areas, and uh, here's Sir Roger DePew and, and and many others who were uh, very influential in the early days of profiling in the FBI and started this company. And Ray is right. I mean, nothing went wrong with the company. We weren't sued or anything like that. We didn't do anything wrong. The guys were just getting older. I was the kid in the in the company, believe it or not. Right. And yeah. uh, and uh, and I still wanted to work when they closed the doors in 2017. So I then started uh, my company. But, uh, but yeah, we all here had an affiliation with it and they did some great work back in the day. But John, speaking of back in the day, and you mentioned earlier your police career, give us a little bit about growing up in Dallas. And I mean, you're now a, a well-known psychologist, you know, published, you've uh, been teaching for years at Stockton University, but how did you even consider getting into law enforcement and what was it like in the oh, early gosh. 70s to about mid 80s, I guess, from the Dallas PD? What was it like then? I'm glad I took my prevagen. That was a long time ago. Um, yeah, uh, I joined the, I, I, I got a degree in, in sociology. Uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin and uh, to North Texas State University at that time. Got a degree in sociology and I didn't know <clears throat> really what I was going to do with it. And a friend of mine wanted to go join the police department and he asked me to accompany him uh, to the personnel division. And at that time, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And um, so I went with him. So the uh, personnel officer came out and they took him in the back. Uh, another personnel officer came up and looked at me and said, um, are you next? And I said, oh, no, I don't want to be I don't want to be a cop. And <laughs> he said, why not? I said, well, first of all, I'm too small. And second of all, um, I don't want to get hurt. And he said, well, first of all, you're not too small because uh, I'm looking at these guys that are over six feet walking all around me. You know? And um, and he uh, he said, and and police work is as safe as you make it. That's what he hmm. told me. And uh, uh, later, about five years later, unfortunately, he was shot and killed in a oh. um, situation, drug situation. He left personnel, went back to vice because uh, you rotate through personnel, hardly anyone stays there forever. And um, but I always remembered that and remembered that statement. It, it, it could happen just like that. It's it's not. Uh, am I doing anything wrong necessarily? Uh, is it a lapse of judgment sometimes? Uh, but sometimes it's just it can't be helped. But so I I, I um, went to the back with him and I did all the preliminary paperwork. And I just kind of got caught up in, well, what could I do this? Could I make it as a police officer? So, of course, the first thing was be to be hired. So, um, make a long story short, I went through all the process and and got hired. And I thought, well, I'll stay for a, you know a couple of years or so. But I ended up staying a lot more. And when uh, uh, when I did decide it was time, I, I was I was uh, working on my PhD uh, in psychology all this time that I was in the police department. When I got my master's degree, uh, they pulled me out of uh, the ranks of patrol and put me in psychological services unit, and that was good. I mean, that was I learned a lot about sex crimes, a lot about. Um, in fact, a couple of uh, the FBI's road schools came came by and taught us uh, some of the sex crimes courses, which were very entertaining at the time. And really the academy, all they talked about was uh, rape and, and uh, peeping toms. And once you, um, once you go out and if you um, find any evidence that the peeping tom had uh, satisfied himself, tell the person that lived in the house, hey, no problem, he's not gonna come back. Well, we oh, know that. Yeah, that, you know, that was a long time ago. We didn't even know anything about sex crimes in the academy at that time, except for rape. We, we studied rape a lot, but that's about it. And that was cursory to me after going through Hazelwood's class. But um, so um, 
I was in psychological services for a while. Uh, then I made sergeant. And when you're in psychological services, you cannot have a supervisory position because you are, you have to report anything that an officer says or tells you that they did something wrong. You have to report it uh, just because you're a sergeant. So I had to make a choice because I took the sergeant's test. Uh, I find myself just taking these tests and doing these things just to see if I can. And um, so I did make sergeant and they gave me the choice to not be there, be somewhere else. So I know a lot of your listeners are going to be a little upset about this, but I went to internal affairs division. So, oh, no. Oh, yes. And, and Ray hates those people. Oh, well, you know, I tell you, Ray, <laughs> I, internal affairs has a whole different um, reputation up here in North Jersey, where I am, uh, than they did in uh, Texas. And and in Dallas in particular, I mean, IED was was fairly well respected. The members were, and I think it was because everyone wanted the integrity of the department to be uh, very high. Um, so I didn't get the, the any of the backlash that I hear some of the guys up here get. But um, not to say New Jersey's bad. It's not what I'm saying. It's just a different culture and a different way of looking at things. But um, so I stayed in in. Um, internal affairs, and then I went to the Fugitive and Special Investigations Division where I was sergeant, and um, we did all kinds of, of things. Um, uh, I guess you could liken it to uh, the Intelligence Division on Chicago PD, which is nothing like it. I mean, that's that the concept is the same, but the way if we treated people like that, we'd be fired in a day. Uh, so that wasn't like that. And uh, I stayed there and then uh, decided I had a kid that I was raising. Um, and I decided it was time to uh, move out of police work and move. Because I got my Ph.D. I was I was a working police officer with my Ph.D. And everybody was telling me, what are you nuts? Are you crazy staying here? And so I, I did get John, out. What year? What year are we talking now? You get your Ph.D. in what year? 1987 is when I got my PhD. And just so everyone knows, back in the old days, you had to be in classroom all the time. And I'm sure at the university, you know, taking those graduate classes, et cetera, not online like today. Uh, so it was a lot more difficult than necessary. I, right? I, I had some great lieutenants. Uh, I was able to change shifts and then working in a, in a, um, a kind of deployment uh, capacity. I was able to go to school, go to class. But when I was in IED, I was taking classes and I had um, a good support from the upper ranks there. So uh, if I had to change from evenings to day shifts in order to take a particular class that you had to be in class to take, and you're right, there was no online teaching back then. You had to be in class. And, uh, Ray, uh, you started your doctoral program when you were still in the Bureau, right? I did. Yeah, about a year, year and a half before I left. Almost two years before I left. Yeah. It, um, it can be tricky. It, it was a little bit different. Everything I did, too, was uh, was face-to-face. There was no there was an online portion, but everything we did uh, that I did was uh, in a face-to-face format. And what we're John, we're going to come... We're going to come to the present in a bit and, you know, bring us closer to time. But I'm a student of history. And I remember um, November 22nd, 1963, very well. Some of our audience will, but it, it, it happens to be the day President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, uh, Texas. I was 10 years old. And um, what do you remember of that day? And I'm curious, too, do you remember meeting cops later on when you joined the department? who may have been working that day? Did they have stories to tell you? Did any of them know Officer J.D. Tippett, uh, who was, a lot of people forget this, but they're, it's, I think it's a closed case regarding Lee Harvey Oswald. Besides killing the President of the United States first, within about a half an hour, he killed a Dallas police officer. And, um, and they had to build that whole case. Of course, Oswald was murdered three days later. But John, just any, just any, uh, Interesting anecdotal uh, conversations you've had with some old timers once you joined about that fateful day. Well, I want to thank you for not asking me if I was a police officer. At <laughs> no, that day because some I know you weren't. Really do. 
but no, I was I was just a little tight at that time. But um, after joining the apartment, uh, I it was something that was talked about quite a bit. I mean, from uh, nineteen seventy five when I joined, uh, it was still kind of fresh in everyone's minds. Um, I personally did not talk to any of the officers there because most of them had retired. Some of them were still there. Uh, uh, there's one particular officer in the motorcade kept, I mean, it's kind of like, um, uh, spread out throughout the, the different, uh, we called them, uh, stations at the precincts that what you call them up here in, in Jersey. But, um, they, they were adamant that someone fired in front of Kennedy, especially the one uh, motorcycle officer. There were there were four motorcycle officers um, flanking the uh, car that he was in, and one of them was adamant that they saw. And I don't want to get gory here, but they saw the blood and the, the, the guts come back and hit his windshield. And he uh, made no bones about that, that that happened. And he was sure that the, one of the shots came from the front. Um, I did not work in the same uh, area that J.D. Tippett, Officer J.D. Tippett, um, worked in. That was the Southwest Division, and I was in Central Division, and then later in Northwest Division. So I never made it to the so southern part of Dallas. Um, and uh, there were just a lot of stories. And I, I will say that the consensus when I was on the force, uh, the consensus was pretty solid that there was more than one shooter. But, of course, the Warren Commission disagreed and uh, no one has been arrested. I know um, that one guy was was taken to trial. Clay, do you remember his last name? Um, in New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am drawing a blank on his name, but yeah, that was the movie JFK focused on that part. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he was found not guilty. So, um, so really the records just show Lee Harvey Oswald did it. And it was interesting to hear some of the talk. Um, of course, what I heard was basically secondhand because like, like I said, um, most of the guys had retired by then, uh, or left, just left the department. And, um, but there was that, and a lot of blame, of course, going around for letting Jack Ruby wander into the um, basement of City Hall, uh, of the jail, and shooting uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. So I will say there was a lot of, of um, it's uh, almost traumatic for some people to even talk about. Um, and I, I heard, and so you didn't get a lot of information at that time. Yeah, for those of us who remember the Sunday, which I guess was November 24th, I believe it was the first ever homicide captured live on American television. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember as a little kid watching my dad yelling, holy something or other, they just shot the guy. And yeah. uh, and we all ran in and they had, you know, they would show it over again. So a bizarre time, but that's of course the past. And yeah, it still comes up nowadays. And quite frankly, Ray, um, I don't know what to believe anymore, sometimes even with my own agency. What a lot of people don't know is the murder of a president back then was not a federal crime. The FBI was not the lead agency in the murder of the president. It was the Dallas Police Department. And yeah. uh, the FBI, of course, played some roles. Years later, I was, um, Ray, as, as you know, um, uh, every five years in the FBI, what they call a background invest or reinvestigation, and they want to make sure you're not a spy taking all kinds of money into different accounts like Robert Hansen, who just died, or Earl Pitts, uh, who was a spy. And I think he's actually out of prison now. So after those guys were arrested, they went, they make sure they check all your records, whatever, and your bank records and interview you. And they're usually retired agents. Anyway, long story here. Uh, right before I retired, a guy came in, old timer, probably probably about my age now, but uh, but he was still working, doing these background checks. And it so happens he, was, uh, he wasn't assigned to the Dallas division of the FBI, but within like two days, Hoover ordered, you know, 300 agents to go there. 
and uh, and just sitting back and talking to a guy who was actually part of that investigation. He said, I didn't really do that much, but I did interview this person, that person, this person knew Oswald, blah, blah, blah. So that's interesting. Ray, in your FBI years, did you ever meet anyone that worked any cases that go back that far? No, never did. I just, as a matter of fact, I was just in Dallas uh, last October for the IACP conference. And I actually took a tour of the book, you know, the, the building where the shooting occurred. And you, it's, it's funny because it's so well known there that there's X's in the street where the shots took place, where they put X's in the street so that people can see those things. So it's, it's, it's as real today as it was, uh, you know, 60 years ago. Hard to believe, and uh, maybe someday we'll uh, we'll get the answer to what really happened. But let's let's move up a little bit here. And um, John, besides, um, you're obviously a college professor, um, a doctor of psychology. Um, you, besides teaching at Stockton University, you also have a private practice. I'm certainly not looking for names or any specifics, but you actually deal with the state, and you um, you do your best to help. Um, uh, shall we say, offenders or people accused of, of sex crimes, things like that. Can you share a little bit of how that process works? Sure. Um, Stockton University, when I, when I came to Stockton, it was um, Stockton State College. And it was a publisher parish, parish institution. So I had to write some articles and uh, having come from the Fugitive and Special Investigations Division, um, where we did a lot of sex crimes. We investigated a lot of sex crimes cases. And so I wrote articles on that, kind of blending psychology with uh, law enforcement. And I got a couple of calls. I received a couple of calls from uh, people around here, uh, some agencies wanting me to uh, possibly treat some of the sex offenders that are being paroled and, and some that were being placed on probation. And I, I know my first uh, response was, uh, treat them. I, I don't think so. I used to arrest them. I'm <laughs> good with that, with treating. And uh, so they, uh, uh, it was Ocean, it was some uh, people from Ocean County, uh, a little further north of uh, us. And, um, so, but I relented, I, I went and uh, I started uh, doing some uh, treatment plans for some of the offenders. And then I started counseling them. And then the word got out that we had a sex offender therapist, somebody who was willing to treat sex offenders. And, and people ask me, and you may be asking yourself, uh, you know, why would I want to do that? And uh, first of all, uh, sex offenders are very multidimensional people. Um, some of them are uh, able to turn their lives around. Thank goodness. You know, the popular belief is that, uh, 70% of sex offenders, um, will reoffend when in actuality, it's really only about 14, uh, percent that would actually after treatment and after therapy, it's a very low recidivism rate, much lower than a lot of people think. Uh, but the real reason is it's just like in police work. Um, in police work, you try not to have victims and from a preventative fashion. Well, when you're doing therapy with um, um, these sex offenders, the whole idea is not to have any more victims. That they're gonna be out anyway. They're going to be walking the streets. Uh, let's see what caused, what psychological problems were causing them to act out in the way that they did. And, uh, you know, as Roy Hazelwood always said, it's not about sex. It's about control and power. Yeah, sure. And uh, with, um, who was that, Ann Wolbert Burgess. and they, Ann Burgess. Uh, yeah, Burgess. And they, uh, uh, and I think they're right. So the main goal is to see what was happening, what their triggering effects are, uh, employ these relapse prevention plans, have safety plans, um, and and I, I it works quite well, it really does. And I'm I'm glad to see most the vast majority of um, people that I come in sex offenders that I come in contact with 
Uh, the vast majority do not reoffend, and I'm very happy to be a, a small part of that. Let me let me ask you this, John. I, I find it a very interesting statement that you said initially. Uh, the public believes that, or and a lot of police officers and those people not in the know believe that 70% of these offenders are going to reoffend. But you said the data shows that it's more around 14%. Yeah, 14 to 17%. Is the what last are point. the signposts? What are the signposts that, uh, that you see that, uh, you know, you talked about triggers. What are some of those signposts? What are some of those triggers? that separate the ones that don't reoffend versus the ones that that do reoffend. I think there's a big signpost up ahead. And I'm not talking about the twilight zone. It's psychopathy. <laughs> uh, okay. if the more psychopathic the offender is, the more likely that person's going to reoffend because they they don't have the I've I've had big burly truck drivers cry uh, in, in my groups and in, individually, uh, because of what they did either impulsively or they, they weren't thinking and they let the, the sexual feelings overpower them. Uh, and they feel bad for their victims. But when you get a person in there that has no empathy whatsoever for any of the people that he's either raped or ch children mm -hmm. that he has, uh, offended. And I, I, I used the, the pronoun he, because the vast majority are males. I've had maybe six female offenders, adult offenders, because I also treat juvenile offenders. And um, I'm much more likely to see a female juvenile offender than I am an adult uh, female offender. But, um, but if they have empathy, any type of, and you know, empathy is on a continuum. Psychopathy is on a continuum. But if you're up there on the, psychopathic you know check hairs checklist if you're in the in the 30s which is a scale that they use to measure the amount of psychopathy you might have then uh, i'm really worried about those people and the main thing that you have to hone in on is you're not going to get their attention by teaching empathy to most of them you can some but not most so you really have to try to figure out what would what could they do to stay out of jail? And I know some of your listeners may go, oh, that's terrible. But it works with some people. And like I say, that's the hardest to treat is the psychopath. Some some psychologists believe you can't even treat the psychopath. But um, but since I've been doing this, uh, I got my uh, license to practice psychology as a licensed psychologist in uh, 2001. Uh, and, uh, um, I, I can dare say that's the signpost, the amount of psychology. Well, well, let me, let me ask this. And as it relates, and you're talking about sex offenders now, sex offenders range from those that, that attack children to those that attack adults and those that do both. But when you talk about pedophilia, there's a saying that there's no cure for pedophilia when they mm -hmm. have that. Is that is that still true? I agree for the most part. Uh, now we have to remember, just because you're a pedophile does not mean that you are a child molester. Those are two different things. A, a pedophile is someone who has a recurrent, um, pervasive uh, sexual attraction to children. But it doesn't mean that they on it. So when they, a, a pedof, pedophilia is a psychological term. Child molester, which you can be arrested for, you can't be arrested for pedophilia. You can be arrested for child molesting, uh, inappropriate contact with a child, all the children type offenses, but they're two separate situations. Now, obviously, most child molesters have pedophilic tendencies, according to the DSM-5, but so, not all, um, not all. In fact, I, I, I speculate, I, I, I don't want to speculate, but the number of pedophiles who become child molesters 
is not as high as people think. So there you would. So could you say then that there's two different types of child molesters? And I know you said the child molester is not a pedophile, but you would might say the preferential child molester is more of a pedophile where the situational child molester is not a pedophile. Is that a fair statement? Uh, that could be. First of all, I didn't say pedophiles are not child molesters. I'm saying there's there's two distinct definitions in the in the uh, vernacular. DSMP4, a yeah. psychological statement about your mental condition. You can be a pedophile. Um, now, most child molesters, most have pedophilic tendencies, and they mm. are pedophiles. So most child molesters are pedophiles to some degree, maybe not strictly from the DSM-5 or DSM-4 and all the rest of the DSMs beforehand, not necessarily from that definition because it has to be uh, a lot of the DSM-5 uh, and 4 and 4TR and all those. You Let's describe what the DSM is real quick, John. Diagnostic uh, and Statistical Manual uh, of Mental Disorders. And that's sort of like the psychologist and psychiatrist uh, guidebook. It's their Bible. Uh, all of the offenses are listed in there. And so, uh, in fact, now they, they make a distinction between pedof uh, pedophilic disorder uh, and pedophilia. And um, at some point, you have to be stressed by your thoughts and your feelings. Used to, that was a, a, a main criterion is that you uh, you had to, um, it had to cause you stress. If it didn't cause you stress, you weren't diagnosed as a pedophile, which was sort of strange. But now now you can be. Can I, isn't there a movement afoot in I think the state of California and some other states to legally change the definition or move away from the term pedophile? And they're now using the term minor attracted persons, MAP for short, to sort of uh, soften the language about someone who likes to have sexual fantasies about little kids. Are you familiar with that term? Is it that the DSM will ever change that? I'm not familiar with that term. Mm -hmm. I know that NAMBLA, the North American Manboy Love Association, and uh, the Rene Guyon groups, they always, mm -hmm. they're, they're always coming out with uh, um, trying to soften um, that aspect. Um, but no, I'm not familiar with that in particular. But, uh, but in, in, to answer Ray's question again, the situational uh, child molester, um, it, a lot of people believe they are not necessarily pedophiles. Right. Um, because they can have sexual relations with females also, or, or males, mm -hmm. adult, adults, uh, and it's the stressful events that cause them to, to go towards a child. But the question is, what mental capacity do they have that would um, allow them to go towards a child anyway, sexually? And they, they have to have some pedophilic tendency, unless it's just all anger and that kid is just an object just like some rapists are uh, mm -hmm. where, that, where, you, where your victim is nothing more than an object you don't see that person as a child you don't see them as an adult you don't even see them as a male or female in some ways it's just an object for you to take out your your anger your power and you're you're using sex as a weapon to do that you're the ones very high on the psychopathy scale, right? The ones you just described. Yes. Uh, yes, okay. absolutely. No empathy, no no concern. I mean, when I study the serial killers, how, how do you how do you take these children like Wesley Allen Dodd or Mac Ray Edwards, uh, uh, James Duquette? What, how do you take children and kill them? Um, and they're not all pedophiles. Sometimes they don't even have sex with the child. Let, let's morph into serial killers in a few minutes, but let me just kind of end this part with 
John, and I know your your client base, your patients um, are are you know on different on different scales, so to speak. But how many of the offenders of that of whom you come in contact with, how many of them were sexually assaulted as young children? I, yeah, I've been keeping sort of a, a record of that. About forty percent. Forty. Of mine, yes. Uh huh. I would think that would be higher, but uh, I'm, I know. I know. I would really think that would be higher because it's just such a such a known commodity that most of the individuals that engage in that type of behavior at one time were a victim. I'm not saying all, but most yeah. most were. I know. I know. That's that's what most people think. Now, I would say if you combine being sexually abused with being physically abused some way, now we're getting up into the 80, 85%. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And you throw animal abuse in there. If you're torturing little animals when you're a young boy, that opens up a whole other Pandora's box to uh, offensive and predatory type behavior. Then well, throw in a- arson and urinesis, the homicidal triad, as they used to call it. John, are they still subscribing to that? That was Douglas and I think Hazelwood back in the day. It was an interesting three-legged stool that a lot of serial killers, I'll just finish this up here, were um, either they tortured animals, they lit fires, or they wet their beds, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. What's the latest on that? That's not something most people subscribe to as, uh, when you have one of those, you it's, it's a major problem. Um, maybe minus the enuresis, which is wetting the bed, um, because that could be uh, a, a physical problem, a kidney or sure. bladder or, or a urethra or any, any type of problem like that. But the, the torturing of small animals probably is the best indicator of whether or not the person is going to, uh, and the larger the animal. So we're not talking about bugs and butterflies or, or taking the lightning part of the bu- bug, uh, lightning bug off and putting it on your shirt. Okay. When we start talking about. I never bugs, even thought of that, John. Oh my God. What you, kind of yeah. childhood did you have? There we go. <laughs> oh, I lit up like I'm, a, at I'm any rate. Kidding. Uh, I know the, uh, uh, you know, putting, uh, uh, cherry bombs in the, anuses of cats and laughing as they explode that that person if they're not changed in some way by a teacher or a parent or someone that the child respects you know they're they're going to be in big trouble because it's the that's that's the best indicator of whether or not someone's going to hurt someone else and if they like to hear the crying and the whimpering uh that's that's your sexual sadist because a lot of young boys in particular have uh, orgasms when they are torturing these animals, hearing the cries, and they want to hear the women or the men later on as adults. They want to hear that same thing so they get that same feeling. Bizarre. Um, is another it's not as big an indicator as uh animal torture and a lot of a lot of uh, people that have uh don't get me wrong if you set fires uh and you torture animals uh doesn't mean you're going to be a serial killer but you're probably going to have some problems with authority later on in life well we've morphed into the world of serial killers and john um I'm not sure how many databases there are in the world, but I happen to know you have a very comprehensive serial killer base, which I believe you started from scratch maybe 10, 15 years ago. I've seen it. I've been in your office. It's an amazing um, repository. And in fact, when we were doing the show Killer Profile with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards, we brought you on board as our technical advisor. I mean, we dealt with a lot of, or at least Jim and I did in, in the U.S. and Laura a little bit in the U.K. with some serial murderers, but we didn't know them all. And and John did, and you really helped us uh, build that show into the success that it was. It was a short-lived show, but uh, I think eight episodes, and they're still being uh, presented on TV. So, John, what got you into 
categorizing these people and how did that whole thing start? Well, interestingly, it started uh, my interest in serial killers um, and serial murder and multiple murder. So mass murders too. Back then we had um, spree murderers and serial murderers and mass murderers. Now the FBI has officially dropped the death, dropped the spree murder and we just have serial murder and mass murder. Um, so a, a, a serial murder is anyone who kills two or more people at two different locations. Uh, don't have to have a cooling off period anymore. Uh, so that's how your spree murder drops away. Um, and then the mass murder where you kill four or more people at one location at one time. But I was in Dallas as a police officer and we had a person uh, I answered a call. It was a deceased person call. And I am I get there first. And I'm there uh, in East Dallas. And this guy is talking about his girlfriend who's on the floor. And she is deceased. And he's so upset. And he's, he's uh, um, I, I felt really bad for him. And uh, my job was nothing but to be there. Call all the necessary um, supplementary officers, you know, he, our CSI was PES, physical evidence section, which it's not as sexy as CSI, but nevertheless, that's what it was. And so that was all my job was. And everybody got there and they took this guy to the station. And I had, I was there with several other patrol officers. And um, so he goes to the patrol, uh, goes down downtown. And now the story goes that uh, because an officer came back and told us what happened, but they were about to let him go. They got his statement and uh, he confesses right there that he did kill her. And he said something like, in fact, um, I've killed about 15 or 16 people. And when I heard that, I thought, my gosh, how did I not know that? You know, I mean, they don't have the, the mark of Cain on their forehead. I, I wish they did, but they don't. And there's so, and, and I was so amazed at how, how badly I felt for him. And then I started looking at different types of serial killers and, but, but just kind of on the cuff as a police officer. And then when I got into academia, I, I really honed in on studying the people and everybody knew, um, John Wayne, this is even, even, um, before, um, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, but you know, the, the seventies, uh, serial killers and the eighties about, you know, the John Wayne Gacy and the Robin Gex and some of those guys. Um, and I started looking at what they did because I was really amazed. There was a, 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 uh, rumor that this guy that, that Dallas arrested was, um, also into cannibalism. And I, I just really, couldn't imagine such thing. It was sort of like when I answered my first uh, elderly rape victim call, an 84-year-old lady who was anally raped, and I just could not understand. Because again, at that time, I thought rape was about sex. And I thought serial murder, um, or murder itself, but serial murder in particular, was about you know, hatred of people, which it could be symbolically but um i it just spurred me to start looking at murder in general and we had a lot of incidents in dallas where i thought it's just crazy crimes um and so when i went to academia i really wanted to study what makes these guys tick what caused them to do this and then as i started studying i realized there were different categories of serial killers based on their crime scene behavior we, we all know that there's there, there's probably a thousand different motives for a thousand different serial killers. But um, so I started looking, I, I based that database on, um, uh, and, and you so rightfully pointed out that I had misspelled Unabomber on, on one of those, uh, Jim, when you first saw it. Uh, but but I, I wanted help. So I got some graduate students and we started that database. We had 64 variables, you know, race, sex, age, how they were raised, what kind of car they drove, and everything you could think of. 
and I pulled some of that off of the VICAP um, uh, pamphlet or folder that we got. Uh, when we, I, we should define, we should. Oh, VICAP, yes. Uh, Violent Criminal Apprehension Program based in Quantico, Virginia at yeah. the Academy. And most police departments are asked to subscribe to that when they have violent crimes. It's a computer database so they can map, mix and match and compare across the nation. Yeah, so I took those variables and I added a lot of those to our database, uh, plus some that, that I, I and the graduate students uh, thought of. And uh, it just mushroomed from um, about 50. We wrote our first article. I think we had like 70 uh, killers. And now we have uh, in the uh, about 700 of our Serial, 700 serial code. Now, I will say that since the FBI dropped the definition from three to two, then that really adds to your database, unfortunately. But um, do you believe that there's a distinction that still remains that separates the spree killer, what used to be known as a spree killer, versus a serial killer? Oh, I, I absolutely do. I, I think it's uh, for psychological purposes. I mean, I know the FBI wanted to do that for resources or to, to come. I'm not sure why they did it. Uh, I read that report uh, in 2005 when uh, they uh, looked at that, but um, I made that change and I still don't quite understand it. I think there is a, a major psychological difference between the spree murderer, the mass murderer and the serial murderer. I think the spree murderer has more in common with the mass murderer than they do the serial murder. But then I still think all three of them can be differentiated. I agree. I, I agree with you. I don't even subscribe to that. Even in, when I teach at the master's level, and I don't even teach at the undergrad level anymore, but at the master's level, and we talk about that, I still talk about the spree. And I mm -hmm. let them know the fact that, hey, the FBI doesn't subscribe to this anymore. But however, I do. Uh, you know, that's, I was kind of raised on that as was Jim and, uh, and as were, as were you. And I agree that there is a distinct separation there uh, that, that really separates them when you yes. look at that. Yes, I do think so. And, and you don't always need that. I mean, a serial killer is supposed to have a cooling down period, but I guess now the FBI just stating it just has to be a different location. But what one block away, one mile away? I yeah. mean, to me, it from a qualitative and quantitative perspective, it's it's a little bit more confusing. And I was still in the bureau back then, um, and I remember some conversations happening about altering the the overall uh, definition. But uh, I didn't play a direct role in that. I was mostly doing my forensic linguistic stuff then. But um, do you think, John? Um, so you said seven hundred plus serial killers in your database mm -hmm. are they all just the united states no no i i have i've included some from other countries okay okay no malat from australia and and um um my mind's going blank right now but uh john bunting from australia yeah i have a lot of us australian serial killers and of course uh, uh you have the english <laughs> England has quite a few. Joanne Dennehy, a female uh, from England that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and then you have your, uh, and his name escapes me right now, but he's the, uh, a lot of people uh, equate him with Jeffrey Dahmer um, over in England. I can't think of his name right now. It, it'll come to me as soon as we go off the air. But, uh, <laughs> That's okay. But there, there's, That's okay. And then, of course, Chikatilo from Russia, Anam Priyanko from, uh, uh, I believe he's Russian or, or Japanese. Uh, so, yeah, there, I have some from different countries, too. Let me get your thoughts on one of the first and one of the most famous serial killers, Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about Jack the Ripper? Well, by definition, he's a lust killer. Mm -hmm. uh, probably uh, mentally ill. Um, anytime you see people tearing out organs, 
um, or um, cannibal. I don't. I don't think he was a cannibal, but maybe in some writings. Um, but to do what he did, he would be defined as a lust killer. Most lust killers are very mentally ill in some way. Um, so uh, I think he probably just had a hatred towards women. It's not true that serial killers that kill prostitutes have a hatred for prostitutes, so they want to get rid of the world of prostitutes. That's been a long-standing. Well, this isn't that the reason they choose prostitutes? No, they're available. They're vulnerable. And for him walking around out there in the in the night in a red light district, uh, he has this severe hatred where he almost wants to depersonalize them to the point that they don't even exist. Um, and he did choose only women, but that could be because he didn't want to choose someone that could possibly match his own strength and, and power. Um, so that's sort of a wide open question, Ray. Is there any? It is. It is. It really is. Like, are you familiar with, uh, Dr. Thomas Bond, the police surgeon that kind of gave the first rendition of what he thought? Yeah, it was really the first profile. And he kind of thought he did an autopsy of Mary Kelly, the, the Ripper's last right. victim. Mm-hmm. And he tried to reconstruct the, um, uh, I guess, the crime scene and said, you know, everybody thought they were looking at a surgeon or a doctor because of the removal of the organs. And Bond says, this guy has no anatomical knowledge or anything what, in reference even close to being a doctor. Uh, and when you look at some of the things that I thought were interesting, where he would cover the face of the victims with a sheet, what does that say to you Well, when that happens? Well, it could say several things, but one thing is that he wants to depersonalize them. Even yeah. I mean, he's doing it physically. He's depersonalizing. Now, some people have said, oh, well, any killer who covers someone's face, they don't want you to see them because they, uh, they plan on not killing you. Well, okay, we know that's not true. Um, or that you feel guilt and you're covering the face. Um, I doubt that. Uh, I think it's more of a depersonalization. He just he, he doesn't want to see this as a person, and, and he doesn't. He doesn't see them as, as people. And like I say, he's almost obliterating them as human beings. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, John. Interesting, really too, from a linguistic perspective, there were some messages left at the scene of uh, one or more of the killings. And I've looked at some of these over the years, not officially, but actually there was a TV show in the UK that asked me to look at these messages. But there's no doubt that there was fake news even back then, and they're convinced <laughs> that some journalist actually snuck into some of these crime scenes and either wrote something on the wall, which at least the Ripper did once or twice, but also sent letters to different newspapers or other types of outlets, the police, and said, hey, I'm the Ripper, this, that, and the other. So uh, it's, it's, there's pretty, it's pretty clear now that there was more than one person that wrote these messages. So from a linguistic perspective, uh, there's not a whole lot that can be done. There only, there's only one real Ripper. They're pretty sure of that. But other people, for whatever reason, selling newspapers or just messing with the system, they decided to uh, uh, leave those other type of fake messages around. John, do you think there are, um, with DNA and surveillance camera, well, with DNA analysis capabilities now, CODIS, of course, the, uh, the, the DNA database, but, uh, but also surveillance cameras everywhere and the high-tech ways of, uh, you know, telling where someone is with my cell tower, um, uh, triangulation, the pings. Are we seeing more mass murderers today than serial killers? It's like a one and done thing. If they're lucky and get away with it, okay. If they if they have suicidal ideation on top of their homicidal ideation, well, no big deal there either. Uh, you know, suicide by cop. Um, I mean, when I was in early early days of profiling, John Douglas or someone, and I'm not disagreeing with this at all, but to this day, I'm not sure how he knew this. So at any given time, there were 200 serial killers functioning throughout the U.S. This would be like in the 90s at somewhat. 
okay, there's actually very few serial killer cases I ever actually uh, worked. So I'll throw the question back at you. Is there a disincentive to be a serial killer nowadays because it's so damn difficult to get away with it? And maybe some people, I know there are different mindsets and different thought processes and different levels of psychology involved, but maybe some people that would have considered being a serial killer just say, hell, I'm taking out this classroom and all these people that used to bother me and get it over with at once. Any ideas there? Well, first of all, if I'm still alive, ask me in 10 years, because mm -hmm. that's when the killers of today will come out. I mean, we may be, I don't want to scare anybody, but I mean, who knew that Todd Colehead, you know, was a serial killer, a real estate agent, you know, down in, I think, South Carolina, or Sean Great up in Ohio uh, was a killer. These are very, who knew? And, and we still don't, they're, they're not on the public's mind, these two guys, um, or Sean Vincent Gillis that we talked about in Killer Profile. Um, so we'll find out in a few years what technology, if anything, is doing to deter people. But serial murder is a very need-driven, it's uh, psychological, it's psychogenic, it's, 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 I don't think it's something, and, and of course, being a neuropsychologist, I believe that there's a lot of brain behavior going on up there that they are consciously not able to uh, take care of and make good judgments. So it's so need driven that I don't think they're thinking, uh, well, a, those who don't think about it, I don't think they're thinking about, about being caught because I think serial killers never think they're gonna get caught. They still think they're smart. They're still narcissistic. They still think they're smarter than the police smarter than DNA, smarter than the cell phone pings. I mean, that's how they caught uh, Todd Colehead was when he had that woman enslaved in that container. Her phone last pinged on his property, and that's how the police department found her before she was uh, killed. Um, and you can never, you can never judge, uh, well, uh, victim offender dynamics. Uh, Sean Great was caught when one of his victims um, escaped and was able to call 911. And so you, you just never can control all the variables as a serial killer. And of course, we know the, the organized killers, they, they plan, they think everything is, is fine, but they're still like Dennis Rader, they're still so narcissistic they still have to talk to the police okay. uh, in some way. They have to boast. So they're always going to make mistakes. They're killing some, some of them who are killing people that look alike over and over. Those are symbolic representations of people they really wanted to kill, but, but couldn't in some way. And so it's not something I feel that they're able to control in themselves. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they should be judged, you know, innocent because of being insane or anything, uh, which we haven't talked about insanity, but they're not insane, but I think their brains are different. Adrian Rain has done, and, and um, uh, Kent Keel in New Mexico and, and Jimmy Fallon, these are neuroscientists who have looked at the brains of serial killers and there's obviously something different. There's something wrong with their brains. Can't use it in court yet, but it's just a matter of time. Well, it comes back to the old argument, nature versus nurture, which we could do a whole episode on that. But, you know, were some of these people abused as young children and or do they have brain abnormalities that you've just described? Probably in most cases, there's a combination of those. Is it 10 to 90 degree uh, percentage or or somewhere, you know, closer to that? And uh, and I hope a lot more research is coming in that regard. We're kind of getting near our time, Ray. Final question or two for John. Um, you know, I have so many questions. I, I don't want to stop. I'd love to go on, but uh, we got to have you back, John, number one. I mean, um, this has just been great. And I know our listeners are just garnered in here. I'll, I'll throw one out because it's always 
a question about uh, another old case, but it's a little bit more newer, and it's it's up in Boston. It's the Boston Strangler, uh-huh. Albert DeSalvo. And uh, I know there was a Dr. Brussels who thought he attributed all the crimes to one person, but John Douglas came out and said he believed there were two different person, different people. Now, a lot of people think George Nasser, who was his cellmate in prison, may have been involved or may have been one of the individuals involved in some of these, but it never came out. What are your thoughts about about him? I mean, he winds up saying he's going to come out and, and tell his story about what really happened. And just before he can do that, he stabbed in prison and killed mm-hmm. him, which I thought was so no charges were ever filed in any of those things. Yeah. And some of the things that he talked about uh, didn't reminisce. And they asked him, and I think one of the questions they asked, they says, did you do all these things? And he goes, I'm not sure. I think I did some of them, but he wasn't sure if he did all of them. And I just, I just, you know, I have to kind of agree with John Douglas versus Dr. Brussels when he was talking about that. What are, what are your thoughts on that, John? Well, <laughs> uh, See, I, I should have prepared better. Uh, I didn't think you were going to ask those questions, but let me let me say this. I can certainly see why um, uh, Douglas and many, many people think there were two. Look look at the MO or victimology. If you look at the victimology, started off with, with uh, more elderly type uh, people. Um, and uh, and then all of a sudden he goes to uh, young, younger people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now, my first thought as first working the data set that I have, uh, I was thinking too, well, this has got to be two people. And now I'm not sure because if you read um, Brussels' report, he talks about him evolving into doing what he wanted to do. He didn't feel competent with the um, with women his age, which kind of contradicts his sexual appetite with his wife. So, Correct. but he didn't, he, he didn't, according to Brussels, he was evolving and the, his first young victim. And when I say young, I think she was in her twenties. Uh, his first one, he didn't go, he didn't intend on killing her, but when he was with her in her apartment, he felt that, that, overpowering sensation to do it and when he did that felt a lot better than when he was killing the elderly ones and then in his writings uh when he compared some of the the notes and writings that um boston strangler or albert DeSalvo had he said um he, he was noticing some of his writing was very sexual in its orientation and he, and in his mind, this was a guy who always wanted to kill young women. He always wanted to rape them. Um, and he never felt competent enough until after he killed these young. And it sort of likens some of these serial killers who kill, um, start off with children. And then they evolve into killing adults. Uh, or vice versa, they may devolve. They start off killing adults, and every once in a while they have to, to kill a child too. So we can't look at just victimology. And I think we know that at least one of his victims does, um, was his because of DNA. So I think the question is where all of them is, like you were asking, uh, right? Right. So uh, I don't know. I can, I can I can see both sides. Yeah. I wish I knew more about each one of those sides. So do I. I was. That's why I was trying to pick your brain a little bit, John. Hoping, hope because you know that's always a question when we always talk about that in class. And I don't have all the answers to this either. But there's always those questions. Is and and a lot of a lot of people look towards that George Nasser, yes. just because he had so much information, and it seemed like the Salvo was kind of fed information by somebody. That's why they thought it might he might have some piece to it. But I think with technology today, and you know as well as I do with some of these cold cases, I think they just identified the Zodiac killer 
of who he is. I did based hear on that. genealogy. Uh, yeah, I, I I heard that, but I yeah. haven't kept up on with exactly what the evidence was for that. I think this is a great time to agree for our next season. Let's bring John back. We'll discuss Absolutely. the Zodiac and a few of these. John, is there a website we can put out there for? Is there a way to get your book? Is it strictly Amazon? How do you want to, anything oh, like that? Are any appearances coming up? No, it's, it's strictly Amazon. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah. Any, uh, if you've been to CrimeCon over the last few years, you may have seen some of John's presentations. Um, any Anything coming up? Besides your college classes in the next few months? Nothing that I have coming up, but you never okay. know. Well, you, may, uh, you know, I'm on your show. Look at this. So. Well, okay. <laughs> and we'll make sure to keep everybody abreast of, uh, of your travels once we know something. So, yeah, let's, uh, we could delve into a lot of these cases down the line. And um, I do appreciate that. I did see John about a week ago at the VDOC Society meeting in Philadelphia. We did our best with that um equivocal death case and uh we'll see where that one goes from there but uh i do uh, want to say one plug yeah go ahead. Is, um, i have teamed up with uh, another researcher named laura brand and i think jim clementi is involved in this too um and she has uh spoken to about 50 serial killers in prison now uh, she did a survey, and I've been analyzing the results of that survey. And I, actually, we did a couple of presentations at the American College of Forensic Psychology. Um, and in that, uh, we, had, we had 22 serial killers and their responses to uh, non-threatening questions. And the responses were just tremendous. So we'll, we'll have to talk about that someday, too. Absolutely. Uh, we will bring you back for that. Ray, why don't you take us out? All right. Hey, listen, uh, we want to thank everybody for joining us on our last episode of the, our first season of Cold Red. We'll be uh, back. Be sure, be sure to join us when we come back for season two. That will begin the first week in August. With that said, thanks for joining us. I'm Ray with Fitz and Dr. John White. Thanks for joining us tonight.